Well, good evening. Welcome to Deer Creek Church, everyone. So my name is Reed Wilking. If you don't know who I am, yeah, thanks, guys. I, I paid them to do that. So, yeah. So if you don't know who I am, I'm our youth director here at Deer Creek Church. And just a very quick plug for the youth group because it's near and dear to my heart. If you are a student who's from 6th to 12th grade, or if you have a child or children who are students who are that age range, we would love to see them here on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. We meet downstairs in the youth area, so that includes the gym, and then kind of the downstairs area that's not the children's ministry. So with that said, when I'm responsible to teach youth, I really love a little bit of audience participation but I promise only ask you to do this once, okay? So just bear with me. So by a raise of hands, who here has heard of Alfred Hitchcock? Okay, almost everybody, it's pretty good. All right, that's it, you guys are good, you're done. <laughs> so, in case you're not aware, Alfred Hitchcock is considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. So if you've heard of the movies Psycho or The Birds, Vertigo, those are a couple of the films that he has directed. And he's actually directed over 50 movies and had 46 Academy Award nominations. And out of those nominations, he actually won six of them. So if you don't know, that's extremely impressive. He's a huge deal in Hollywood, basically a legend. And his nickname is the Master of Suspense. And he credited much of this film's success to what he called the bomb theory, or the bomb under the table theory. So what that is, is you have two different scenes. In the first scene, Two people are having a conversation at the dinner table. And then all of a sudden, a bomb explodes. And everyone's like, oh, well, that was kind of surprising, right? That scene indicates surprise, right? But there's no suspense to that. In the second scene, it's the same scenario. Those, those same two people are at the dinner table. They're talking to each other. But this time, the camera pans down, and you see a bomb that's underneath the table. And that bomb starts ticking down from 15 minutes. So you hear it, tick, tick, tick and then it pans back up. And then those two people are totally oblivious and start having their conversation. So if you're anything like me, that creates some suspense. I'm sitting here wanting to scream at the people in the screen, hey, there's a bomb under the table, okay? It's gonna explode. And in our passage tonight, we actually see both of these things. So we see in Mark some suspense, and then we see a beautiful and completely unexpected surprise at the end that's gonna jolt us awake. So with that said, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And as you're finding that place, if you haven't been with us, here at Deer Creek, we've actually been going through the Gospel of Mark for about the past six months. Today is the Thursday before Easter. So what we're going to be doing is looking in the Bible and commemorating what it is that Jesus experienced on that day, the Thursday before Easter. So last night, if you were with us, Aaron actually ended on verses 10 and 11. So that's where we're going to start out reading. And this is what's going to set the bomb under the table, okay? In our passage, this is what's going to set the suspense for us. So let's read from the Word of God. Verse 10 begins, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray, them to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So we as the audience, we know something really bad is about to happen right? We see that there's a bomb underneath the table. And in this scene, in this passage tonight, the bomb under the table is Jesus's betrayal. So Jesus is about to be betrayed. But here's the problem, right? The disciples have no idea what's going on. They do not see this bomb underneath the table. 
And in fact, Jesus himself completely knows what's going on. He sees the bomb, and he's told them three separate times, and yet still the disciples are oblivious. So to prove that point, let's actually look at the passages where Jesus has predicted his death in the Gospel of Mark and see how the disciples react. So if you'll turn just a few pages back with me, in Mark chapter 8, we'll start in verse 31. So this is the first time that Jesus predicts his death. And he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So notice what's going on here. You have Peter, who's one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his closest friends, takes Jesus aside and he goes, hey man, whatever you're talking about, this whole death, that you have to die and you have to be betrayed, that doesn't make any sense. Okay? I don't know if you've read the scriptures, Jesus, okay? but I have. And I'm telling you, you're the Messiah, you're not going to die. So that's the first reaction. We get the disciples telling Jesus that he's just wrong. So let's look at the second prediction now. If you'll turn a little bit forward with me to Mark chapter 9. So we'll start in verse 30. This is the second prediction. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he, being Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So notice that last verse, verse 32. The disciples' reaction this time, they're not quite as bold. They don't go and tell him that he's wrong. But they say, man, Jesus has a lot of weird stuff. And this whole idea of death, that, that, there's no way that that can be literal, right? That doesn't fit into what Jesus is supposed to be as the Messiah. So they're confused, but they don't even ask him any questions. And finally, we flip forward a little bit farther to Mark chapter 10. So this is the third and final time that Jesus predicts his death before our passage in the Gospel of Mark. So we'll start in verse 32, about midway through. And taking the twelve again, he, being Jesus, began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And to see the disciples' reaction, we'll actually have to do a little bit of paraphrasing, because it happens in about the next ten verses. The disciples hear that, and then they start quibbling and arguing over who's going to be the greatest in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. The way that I read that, the disciples, they're just like, okay, Jesus, I don't know what you just said about the death, but when, when, when you kind of go and you, you start to conquer Rome, can we be the guys who kind of sit at your right hand and your left hand? Can we have positions of power? They completely miss the point. And here's the takeaway, friends. Jesus understands the bombs under the table. We as the audience understand the bombs under the table, right? Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. The disciples have no clue what's going on. They are confused. And with that, we'll pick up back in our passage. So if you flip back to chapter 14, our passage tonight starts in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So here's my first question. If I'm reading this for the first time, I'm going to ask, what in the world is the Passover lamb? And the Passover lamb, the background comes from the Old Testament. So it's actually from Exodus 12. And no need to turn there. We'll just do a very quick summary of what that is. So the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt for about 
400 years. And it's through this Passover lamb that God actually delivered uh, the, the, the people of God, delivered Israel. So he had sent 10 different plagues on Egypt. And the final plague was a plague of the firstborn, meaning that God was going to take the lives of every firstborn in the entire country of Egypt. And God gave instructions to the Israelites. And he said this, take a lamb, slaughter it, take the blood and then spread it over your doorpost. And if you do that, and if you obey those instructions, I will pass over your house and you will be saved from this horrible plague of the firstborn. And here's our takeaway, friends. The context of the Passover lamb is this. The blood of the Passover lamb saved God's people from the plague in Egypt. And I'll say that one more time. The blood of the Passover lamb saved God's people from the plague in Egypt. And remember, the disciples, they understand this context, right? They get the Passover. They're familiar with Exodus 12. But what they don't understand is the bomb under the table, right? Jesus is going to be betrayed. So that's still happening in this scene. But what the disciples are expecting is a holiday. In Exodus 12, God actually commands the people, hey, every year, have a festival, have a celebration, have a holiday to celebrate God's deliverance from this plague. So what they're expecting is kind of the modern-day equivalent of Thanksgiving, right? So the disciples are saying, hey, Jesus, where are we going to get the turkey, right? Should we go to Costco? Should we go to Walmart? Should we go to Target? So then they're basically going to the store, and then they go and they buy the turkey, they buy the ingredients, right? Here's what's going on, right? They're preparing for this feast. But all the while, remember, tick, tick, tick. There's a bomb under the table. Jesus is going to be betrayed, right? When's the bomb going to explode? So let's move on. Verse 13. And he, being Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So in this passage, you see Jesus gives the disciples specific instructions on how they're supposed to prepare to celebrate the Passover meal. And remember, the entire premise of the Passover is to celebrate God's salvation from the plague in Egypt. So they go, and again, the modern-day equivalent, they're getting the turkey, they're baking it, they're mashing the potatoes, they're making the cranberry sauce, they finish all the preparations, they set the table, right? They are ready to celebrate. They're ready to celebrate God's deliverance. But again, tick, tick, tick. There's a bomb under the table. We know Jesus is going to be betrayed. When's it going to happen? The suspense is building. So we move on. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he, being Jesus, came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So here we see a new scene. This is after the preparations are done. It's a little bit later in the day. And what Jesus does in this scene, he takes the camera for the disciples and he pans it down, right? He says, look, here's the bomb. It's underneath the table. It's going to explode. He you know, tears the veil from their eyes. They're in on the suspense. And I can actually just imagine the silence in that moment. 
when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And we see their response in verse 19. They, being the disciples, began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And the disciples asked this question, is it I? It's actually helpful to look into the Greek. So if you don't know, the New Testament was originally written in ancient Greek. And whenever we see this word that's behind this question, is it I, it always expects a negative response. So there's a couple of different examples that we'll use from the New Testament where the same word is used to illustrate what this means. So in Matthew 7, Jesus asks a rhetorical question here. Do people gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the answer is, of course not. It doesn't make any sense. And then he says it again in Luke 6, same Greek word. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The answer, of course not. And the disciples are using this exact same word in the Greek. When they ask, is it I, they expect Jesus to emphatically tell them, of course not. But notice the difference, friends. The disciples, they aren't confused anymore. They're not denying Jesus. They're not correcting him. They're not questioning him anymore. Our text tells us they're sorrowful. They're in shock because the reality is starting to set in. And they finally realize the camera has panned down. The bomb is under the table. Jesus is about to be betrayed. And the worst part, it's going to be one of them who is the betrayer. And making this even more sober is Jesus' response in verse 20. He said to them, Is it one of the twelve? It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus elaborates on his betrayal. And what his response indicates is that the disciples aren't overreacting here. He's about to be betrayed and it's so awful it would have been better for the betrayer to never have even been born than to suffer the punishment that's due for that sin. Friends, do you feel the suspense in this scene? Remember, in our passage, we not only have suspense, we've seen the suspense, we've seen the bomb under the table, we also have a surprise that nobody expected. And it's a beautiful surprise. So let's continue on in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they, drank all, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And do you see the surprise? The surprise here is that Jesus' betrayal, the very thing we've been dreading this entire passage, is what brings about the fulfillment of the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. So just as the blood of the Passover lamb saved God's people from the plague in Egypt, the betrayal of Jesus, his blood being shed and his body being broken on a cross, will save his disciples from the plague of their sin. And after this account, the tragic part is all the disciples abandon Jesus. So the bomb explodes later. Judas betrays Jesus to the religious leaders. 
Peter, again, one of Jesus' closest friends, closest followers, he denies Jesus three times. And this is after he says he will die with Jesus. He says, I will never leave you. But actually, it isn't just Peter who failed. So if we look a little bit farther in verse 29, it said, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And here's the key sentence, friends. And they all said the same. It's not just Peter. Every single one of the disciples agrees. We will never abandon you. We won't leave you. We won't deny you. And yet, tragically, as we'll see tomorrow, a good Friday, in Mark's gospel, not a single one of the disciples is present at the cross. They have all abandoned Jesus. Here's the thing. I'm actually tempted to think, oh, if I were in that scenario, if that were me, I wouldn't have done that, right? <laughs> That's pretty horrible. I wouldn't have abandoned the Son of God. I would have stuck with him. I wouldn't have denied him like Peter. I mean, give me a break. Here's the truth, right? I am absolutely the kind of person who would deny Jesus. So just about a month ago, I was out to dinner with some of my friends, and we went to one of those hibachi places. So if you don't know what that is, highly recommend. They're super good. So <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, I think it's Japanese. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a Japanese kind of cuisine. They'll take food, and you'll order it, and then they'll cook it right in front of you. So part of it is really flashy. So they'll like cut up the meat, and then they'll like be flinging eggs everywhere, and then like fires going, and like you know everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, because <laughs> it, it's quite the spectacle. So the hibachi chef comes out. He's doing his whole thing. Well, once everything kind of calms down, he kind of turns to me and my group of friends, and we start chatting it up. Right? Everything's going great. We're connecting super well. And then he asks a very natural question. He asks, "Hey, what do you guys do for a living?" And already in my mind, I'm like, man, like, why did you have to ask that? Because now i got to say that I'm a youth pastor, and i got to bring Jesus into this and make it awkward. We were, man, we were friends, right? We were connecting so well. So my friend who's to my right, he has an easy answer, right? He goes, oh, I'm a teacher. He's like, dope, man. Yeah, super good for you. Then I'm next in line. He turns to me. So what do you do for a living? And I go, oh, well, um, yeah, I'm a youth pastor. And then, you know, as I'm saying that, he kind of, like, puts some oil on the, on the stove, and then it you know, like flares up, so he kind of misses what I said. And you say, oh, hey, sorry about that. Um, what was that you just said? What do you do for a living? And man, in my head, you know what I actually wanted to say? I wanted to say, oh, I'm a financial analyst, which seems out of nowhere, but that was my job before I was here. I had that job for almost three years. I was like, what an easy answer. Goodness. But then I looked around at my friends, to my right and to my left, yeah, well, they're going to call me out on that. They'll know that I'm lying. So I said, oh, I'm a youth pastor. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, kind of weird. But then he moves on. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my goodness. Like, what a disaster. And the only reason, here's the point. The only reason why I was honest and said, hey, I'm a youth pastor, is so that I wouldn't embarrass myself in front of my friends. So if I'm being honest, I am absolutely the kind of person who would deny Jesus. And here's the sobering truth. All of us are the kind of person who would deny Jesus. But friends, that's not the end. There's good news. The original Last Supper, which is the name for the scene that we just described tonight, 
That was a very somber affair, right? We had all this suspense, camera pans down, Jesus reveals the bomb, which is the betrayal. The disciples are sorrowful, they're in shock. And yet when we celebrate this meal at this table, we don't have to be sorrowful anymore because even though we would abandon Jesus, even though we're the kind of people who would deny Jesus, we can rejoice because of the surprise in our passage that nobody saw coming, that the very betrayal that we were dreading all of tonight, the bomb under the table, is what God used to save us from the plague of our sin. And friends, Jesus' betrayal means our salvation. And how surprising is that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the sacrifice of your son. And we thank you that in your sovereignty, you can use something as tragic and shocking and sorrowful as the betrayal of your own son and his death on a cross for good. God, we thank you for the beautiful gospel that we have of Jesus Christ. And as we partake of this meal together, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time and impress upon our hearts the truth of your word. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.